The Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM Stereo. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. It's nine minutes after seven. My name is Muhammad Fasih Peterson, and this is the burning issue. Now, before we get to the topic of discussion for this evening, please do note we are expecting to break at any time to take the president's live speech. We're not exactly sure what time that will be, so we will be at some point cutting into the program for this evening. President Cyril Ramaphosa is expected to address the nation this evening on additional economic and social relief measures that form part of the national response to the COVID-19 pandemic after meeting with various cabinet members and the President's address follows from uh, recent deliberations uh, with those cabinet members, uh, the National Coronavirus Command Council and the President's Coordinating Council and the National Economic Development and Labour Council among others. Uh, Now, talking about what's coming up tonight, uh, we know the national lockdown has made the lack of food security among poorer communities worse and the government will this week provide details of further action to provide food to vulnerable and destitute people who cannot afford to buy food. Now, over the past three weeks, there have been distressing images of people clamoring for food parcels at distribution centers and of community protests against against food shortages. Recently, we saw the looting of stores and trucks, which reflects how severe the food shortage has become. Many non-government organizations did very Uh, early in the lockdown warn about the impact of the lockdown on already fragile food security amongst vulnerable communities. Now, interestingly, in his weekly letter to the nation yesterday, President Ramaphosa offered a frank assessment of the current situation nearly a month into lockdown. He said government chose to err on the side of caution when implementing state of disaster measures that critics have said have inflicted more damage than necessary to the economy. Uh, His letter strongly hinted at the possibility that many people will be allowed to return to various jobs at the end of April when the extension of the lockdown ends. The president admitted that the inequalities and hunger being highlighted by the coronavirus outbreak are not just because of the apartheid past, but because of a fundamental failing in our post-apartheid society. He also promised that we would... uh, that he would rather shortly provide more clarity on the direct measures that will be taken to ensure that the most vulnerable South Africans don't have to worry about where their next meal uh, will be coming from. So this is exactly what we want to unpack this evening. We're asking the question why South Africa is facing a food crisis. Uh, and before we break for shy, I just want to give you a rundown. Uh, we'll be chatting to active, two activists who deal with food security in South Africa. Uh, after 8 p.m., we have local uh, community organizations who are working on the ground to assist local residents. And around about 8.30 p.m., we'll be chatting to two establishing humanitarian organizations to look at the need for social uh, transformation and poverty alleviation during this difficult time. Now, at the end of the show, we're welcoming your calls and WhatsApps on uh, the numbers provided uh, in the following, 21 and your messages via SMS 47913. You can also WhatsApp us on uh, 072 now, 
Coming back to uh, the President's uh, speech this evening, we know that uh, there are many suggestions floating around about when it might actually take place. Some were saying seven, some are saying uh, eight, and I've seen someone saying something about 8.30, so we don't really know when that's happening. So please uh, do be advised. We will be breaking into tonight's programming uh, to uh, take that speech whenever it does happen. But some very important uh, matters on the table this evening, and leading into the discussion that we're having this evening, talking about a food crisis in South Africa now. Obviously, the president has allowed for food production to um, take place, uh, you know, so so you, you, companies that are producing, for instance, milk and uh, bread and all of those other things are allowed to operate, obviously under permissions from government uh, and various authorities. But the question is affordability of food, especially also when it comes to those people who are selling, especially informal traders. I know that uh, when we look at the fruit and vegetable industry, and we're not talking about the big uh, wholesalers or or, or retailers, we're talking about those informal sellers selling on the streets. Uh, Many people get the fruit and vegetable from them, and you aren't seeing any one of those on the street right now. You're not seeing people selling fruit and vegetables uh, just because of the lockdown. They don't have permissions. And what that does not only impacting on the uh, income but also some people might say it's actually more cost effective to buy fruit and vegetables from uh, these uh, informal traders than to go into a store and purchase uh, at a certain price particularly because the quality of a product dictates its price in the market and we'll speak about that a little bit later on inshallah I want to get your comments also on coming through and perhaps you can even start sending them now already in terms of your opinions on the cost of living the cost of food we'll be uh, delving to that a little bit later on with some of our activists uh, and affordability especially with constrained income a lot of people have been laid off many people are on short time and that if you're on short time it affects your pocket if you have been laid off and you are living off UIF or whatever benefits you've gotten from work if if that, if you were able to, it, uh, and for many people, it's not realistic for them to uh, get their benefits in such a short period of time. You know, how are you dealing with this? Uh, let us know. Uh, 072 Um And just to uh, kind of put into context what we are discussing this evening, uh, I just wanted to read a little excerpt from the uh, one of the organizations that we will be engaging with, the Peter Marisburg Economic and uh, Economic justice and dignity uh, and they did a little bit of a of a, a overview of what the current household uh, spends on food and they were looking at this from the perspective of um, single mothers particularly or women obviously were purchasing food in the home and the idea around the food basket how much food costs at the moment and uh, the projected increases or inflation uh, over probably a two three year period and what that might mean in, in you know April 2020 when most people are either not getting paid what they normally got paid and some people might even not be getting paid anything at all and uh, one of the things that they looked at uh, in the in in the uh, address was uh, they were basing the observations uh, with on conversations with a woman in Peter Marisburg from the 19th of March to the 7th of April and the, they, they're saying any research from the ground during the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown it's not going to be as rigorous as it should be uh, the observations are limited and I've, I've tried to get a sense of what's happening and asked women what they're thinking about 
uh, and what is happening and how they're responding and what the next several uh, weeks look like for them. And they offered some observations to the public as what they th- think might be valuable. Some of the uh, topics that they covered were the, was the overview of food prices uh, in the uh, household food basket, the increase in the bread price, uh, what are people buying more of, what is falling out of the trolley, and what does... What do people's plates look like? What are people buying? What are the staple foods at the moment? Uh, wasting lines, waiting lines rather, and problems with time restrictions and transport and transport in general. And people are obviously complaining in supermarkets due to the fact that sometimes also I imagine you come to a supermarket, you want to buy your goods for the day, and then most of it's been sold out depending on what time you come. And also just the availability of goods depending on how COVID-19 has impacted on production of food and also uh, women eat last the fact that you know in many cases especially with single mothers uh, the motivation is to feed their families to feed their children and they eat last and sometimes uh, not enough uh, also looking at stock fells buzzer shops supermarkets uh, not selling candles uh, particularly in this time when you know people are at home and not working and uh, you know wanting to ensure at least that there's some light in their homes if not electricity um, storing of foods sharing toiletries and how long do we have before we really get hungry uh, asking the question if you know this lockdown continues how long does it take for for a country to run out of food and for people to start you know literally starving particularly those in the sub-economic sector or sub-economic part of South Africa's uh, then also just a general overview of lockdown. And one of the things that they said is if, they, if you look at food prices uh, in uh, the household food basket that they had uh, had compiled month on month from April from March to April, the price of household food baskets uh, increased by 5.8 percent uh, by 187 rand from 3,221 to 3,408. Now, this is just March to April and year on year from 2019 to 2020 April the price of household food baskets uh, increased by 10.8 percent from 331 rand and 32 cents from uh, 3077 to 3408 now um, looking at that and and, and taking that in consideration that's a steep increase I mean if, if you talk about 300 rand per year what is the increase that people really have you know uh, what what increase have, might you have had uh, between uh, between uh, you know 2019 and 2020 if you had an increase at all was it compatible with even that aspect let's not talk about increased cost perhaps in electricity uh, perhaps in 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 in, in water tariffs if, if we if we look at that and other aspects of you know transport and all these other things getting more expensive so you know it's already disjointed and people might ask the question so if that is the case how much more will uh the 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 the, the situation be aggravated as the lockdown continues um we've got some messages on the uh whatsapp line uh, the first one says saddam Muhammad Fasih said montague village in lavender hill also lavender hill people are starving as not one parcel was distributed here when you request from councillors they show attitude as far as trump goes i'd rather go and suffer his racism than suffer from food deprivation it seems as if nobody cares shukran 
Saran. Uh, this one says, Saddam, Alhamdulillah, I'm in the Grassy Park area. Our normal informal fruit uh, and vendors have been open to us and their prices are still affordable. Alhamdulillah, and this is one of the things that I've mentioned. Alhamdulillah, I'm glad that that's happening because, I mean, if we looked, if we walk down, uh, you know, Woodstock Main Road, for instance, here, there are a lot of informal uh, fruit and vegetable sellers and you don't really see those people on the streets as far as I'm, I'm aware. So that is concerning and, you know, making the cost of, of, of fruit and vegetables affordable, that is key. I think that's the staple of a lot of people. Uh, this one says, okay, that just says VOC WhatsApp. I don't know what that is about. Uh, and someone's sending me a picture there that's been screenshotted. I'm not really into that. Uh, but coming back to uh, what we are discussing this evening, and we're going to cross for the Wakta of Aisha in a moment. Hopefully, when we come back, uh, we'll be taking the presence of this. But uh, I just want to get your, your opinions and your views on what we are discussing this evening. I think this is a crucial conversation to have in South Africa um, because, yes, we're trying to stem the spread of COVID-19, but how do we ensure that you know South Africans don't starve? Uh, we do have that obligation, and government has that obligation as well. So your, your, your suggestions, your opinions, uh, 072 0712, SMS us on 47913. And another message saying announcement will be at 8.30, inshallah. Well, we'll see if that happens at that time we're not really sure uh, a lot of different times have been floated uh, but we'll see when we come back inshallah but for now time for us to take a break uh, before we get back to the program do note that we've received uh, some uh, confirmation that the president will be addressing uh, South Africa this evening at half past eight uh, and obviously we know that's around uh, these additional economic and social relief measures that form part of the national response to the COVID-19 pandemic and obviously this flow from the President's recent deliberations at Cabinet, the National Coronavirus Command Council and the President's Coordinating Council and the National Economic De- Development and Labour Council among others and obviously the discussion has been about the fact that the longer the lockdown is in place, the longer that business is restricted the, the, the more impacted the economy will be. But back to the discussion this evening and that is around uh, uh, the p- potential food crisis that South Africa might face. Now the access to food during the national lockdown is without a doubt the most pressing issue facing the country right now. Um, on a daily basis our radio station is fielding calls and messages from local residents uh, desperately seeking assistance with food parcels while NGOs are intensifying their calls for financial aid to feed poverty-stricken households. Now, at the moment, the feeling is that government social security programs during the lockdown are not running effectively and that the funding and food is not trickling down to those that need it most. We have our Western Cape government saying that they have food programs in place, but that only those most in need will be prioritized. Added to that uh, is a string of criteria. Uh, what about those left in the middle? Now, is government doing enough to, to ensure uh, vulnerable South Africans don't have to worry about where their next meal may be coming from, East South Africa on the brink of a food crisis during the national lockdown. Now that's the discussion this evening and um, the the uh, reminder obviously again is that we will break away at 8.30 uh, and that is when we schedule to take the President's address so yeah please do stay tuned for that and uh, in the meantime uh, joining me online is Professor Vishwa Sagtar, co-founder and activist at the South African Food Sovereignty Campaign and Mervil, Mervyn Abrams, the program coordinator with the Peter Marisberg Economic Justice and Dignity Organization uh, Professor Viswash as well as uh, Mervyn, uh, good Good evening and welcome to the show. 
Uh, good evening, Chair. Now, Professor Vish, I just want to jump straight into it. Um, the, the big question on everyone's minds is, is South Africa on the brink of a food crisis? It's, it has been in a food crisis uh, for a very, very long time. And, and, and Mervyn will, will probably say more about um, the kind of detail on that. But just to say that... Um, South Africa went into its worst drought uh, over the past few years, and it's not out of that drought. And in the midst of the drought, the campaigning we did was to draw attention to the deep hunger crisis in our society. We had a hunger tribunal in 2015, uh, actually 2015, with the Human Rights Commission and faith-based communities giving testimony to that. But if we fast forward um, to the present, uh, you know, we've traveled through increasing food prices in the midst of the drought and now into lockdown. And our estimate is that there are about at least 13 million people in food crisis in South Africa right now. So if you were to kind of break that down, at least 4 million people work in the informal sector in South Africa. Overnight, their incomes were lost. And here you're talking about a million domestic workers. You're talking about at least 90,000 waste reclaimers. You're talking about street traders. You're talking about what are sometimes referred to as car guards, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one big part of it. The other part of it is the, the loss of jobs. And the data is beginning to trickle in right now, but I think that many people are estimating at least an additional 3 million people will lose their jobs on the top of uh, already 5.6 million people in terms of a narrow definition of unemployment. Uh, you have social grants in South Africa, which are very, very important to bring relief to households. Uh, but they don't stretch to everybody. Uh, at least 10 million people are not on them. We also have grants that come short in terms of their purchasing power, in terms of the cost of living. And Mervyn, I'm sure, will say more about this. But in the main, though, this is what we are sitting with in the middle of this lockdown. Now, it's a draconian lockdown. It's, it, it, it's guided by public health considerations. But really, it has not been balanced adequately with socioeconomic mitigation measures. There's a lack of heart here. So all these people that have lost income, all those that have not had enough income or low income are really in a difficult place. They have to make some very difficult decisions about the limited resources they have, how do they survive, how do they meet needs for sanitizers, soaps, etc. So it is very, very desperate. And we've seen this express itself already. Uh, we've seen supermarkets getting attacked in cases like Port Elizabeth, parts of the Mitchell's Plain area, etc. Now, these are not um, just riots, as it's been characterized. These are desperate people. And the danger in the situation is that the government, if it does not provide relief tonight, if the state president doesn't get the balance right, uh, we are going to creep into a law and order situation. And that can be very, very dangerous for our democracy, but most importantly for our people. Now, Professor, uh, we know that the President spoke a lot about the Solidarity Fund in his last two speeches. Uh, are the funds from the Solidarity Fund trickling down to those who need it most? From all the reports that we've been getting from the networks we are in, the, the partner organizations we work with on the ground, Solidarity Fund is really not blunting the edge of this crisis. Of course, it's new, and the government in its wisdom set up a parallel structure to the state, I suppose, with the assumption that it could rapidly release resources and, of course, food relief, etc. But that hasn't really sort of kicked into gear in any serious way. We are calling for a democratization of this fund. Um, we are saying that this fund should partner 
uh, call for a national partnership with NGOs on the ground. There's amazing energies on the ground. Lots of initiative coming from communities that have stepped up to, to sort of rally solidarity. All of these organizations could easily slip into a partnership with the Solidarity Fund. And they are, they are resource restricted right now. Many are even going online to crowd in resources, to invite resources, etc., etc. The second thing we're saying about this fund is that it should actually work with all the armed forces because this is a dire situation. So here you're not just talking about the military and the police and firefighting services. You also bring in the Navy. You also bring in the Air Force. And you get them to start distributing food parcels across this country. Again, this is to entrench the constitutional role, the democratic role of these armed forces in our country. They need to be at the front line working with faith-based community leaders, local leaders, and making, the sh- the, making sure the food gets to where it's needed. But I'll say something else around this as well. And that is that uh, unlocking the food commons is very, very important. The lockdown came in such a way that it ended local provisioning of food. Now, from the research we've done and the campaigning work we've done, many, many South African township communities also source their food from micro farmers, small-scale gardeners, small-scale farmers in and around their communities. These are what are called food hotspots. Uh, and and there's, there's hundreds and thousands of these farmers. And they are not able to both uh, sell their produce right now and feed their communities. You also have subsistence fishers. These are people across all our coastal towns and cities that feed their families through fishing. And this is a very, very serious problem. So the, the, the commons has to be unlocked. And I'm hoping again that the state president relaxes or provides an exemption to lockdown for subsistence uh, food commons producers. Maybe the last thing to say is that um, because communities and households are in desperate need, we've argued for a basic income grant uh, to be considered by government. Uh, We've put this argument forward. Um, Institute for Economic Justice has also done some costing to a basic income grant. Many governments in the world, at least 80-odd governments in the world, are thinking about cash transfers. People need money in their hands right now, given the desperation. And this could make a very, very, very big difference. So I'm hoping that the president's uh, announcement tonight isn't just, I mean, maybe he can build on some of the social grants, but again, it shouldn't be ameliorative. We need a transformative intervention now in the country that can give people hope, that can give them the capacity to survive. Now, um, Mervyn, let's turn to you. Um, What do you make of the extent of the food shortage we're seeing in uh, local communities? So I would fully agree with what uh, Professor has just said. I mean, uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic did not introduce a food crisis uh, into South Africa. We have been living with a food crisis for a very long time. All we need to look at is we need to look at our health statistics, for instance. When you have a situation in which 30% of all boy children under the age of five and 25% of girl children under the age of five are stunted, which is a direct consequence of undernutrition, then, then that makes quite clear the extent and the depth of, of, of nutrition and uh, uh, undernutrition, malnutrition, and the food crisis we have had. What the pandemic has done, as, as Professor Vishnu has said, has, it has shone a light on a reality which our media and everybody else have been trying to hide into a darkness. And so we, we do need 
um, at this moment, we're not surprised. Um, because what the, what the pandemic has also done is, of course, it, and the lockdown has deepened an already precarious situation. So, for instance, our research shows that in low economic, uh, uh, low income households, um, that generally food would run out after three weeks and the last week of the month would be a really dire situation. What we're seeing now is that because, uh, Households now also have to buy extra soap, extra jig as, as part of protecting oneself against contracting the, the virus. Um, but they don't have additional income, so they've still the same kind of uh, budget for shopping. Um, and they now have to leave something else in the basket, and that often is food. And then secondly, with the children being home and, and then everyone else being home, food is running out after about 10 days to 14 days. So what we have seen is a desperate situation of people who are extremely hungry, hungry clamoring for food. And, 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 and that calls for, for really uh, extreme interventions on the part of the state. I'm speaking to Professor Vishwas Satkar, co-founder and activist for the South African Food Sovereignty Campaign, and then also Mervyn Abrams, Program Coordinator at the Petersburg Economic Justice and Dignity. Uh, we're going to go for a break. When we come back, we'll continue. And the question tonight is why South Africa is facing a food crisis. And you're welcome to WhatsApp us 0722380712. Do we advise that uh, we do expect to take the presence address at half past eight uh, this evening. My radio station, your radio station, our radio station, the voice of the Cape. Welcome back to The Burning Issue at 7.52 and uh, tonight we're talking about South Africa potentially facing a food crisis or at least that's the question we're asking this evening. My guests online at the moment, Professor uh, Vishwa Sadgar, co-founder and activist for the South African Food Sovereignty Campaign and then also Mervyn Abrams, Program Coordinator for, Mich- for Peter Marisburg Economic Justice and Dignity. Uh, now Mervyn, I want to come back to you and uh, um, recently uh, your organization uh, has been tracking the uh, cost of a food uh, sh- a food shopping basket, particularly uh, in, in in relation to the escalation of costs uh, and uh, what your findings uh, might have been, I think would be of keen interest to the listener. So, so yes, we we track a basket of of thirty eight foods, which is a basket of food that that women uh, tell us they they would like to buy should they have sufficient funds, of course. Uh, on a monthly basis. And, and I mean, that basket includes things like maize meal and rice and flour and sugar and beans and samp and cooking oil, etc. So it's very, very basic. And what the price of that basket at the beginning of April was 3,408 rand. Now, when we consider that that the cost of this basket is 3408 and when we consider that the national minimum wage currently are standing somewhere at 3155 then what then it becomes clear 
that we are not seeing or we're not on the way to a potential food crisis, but that we are in the midst of our food crisis. And what the food crisis, what causes this food crisis, or at least one of the major causes, is the fact that wages in South Africa are just so low and household incomes are just so low. So uh, when we look, for instance, at what does it cost uh, to feed a child, it costs about 651 rand to feed a child aged 10 to 13. And then you look at the child support grant, currently it's standing at 440. So a, a mother cannot, even if that money is solely used to feed a child, uh, uh, the mother will not be able to totally feed a child a nutritious meal based on, on, on that child support grant. So, so one of the things we are saying is, 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 that, is that income um, and wages in this country is just much too low. Our safety net, which is our social grant system, is not actually a safety net. It's, 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 it's set at so low a level that it keeps and maintains a level of poverty that, that in a sense hides the, the level of hunger that exists in our community. But, but, but it is much, set much too low. So, uh, one of the, one of the important ways to, to deal with this going forward is to look at the restructuring of our economy and how can we, can we ensure that households have sufficient income to purchase sufficient nutritious food. Now, uh, Mervyn, uh, the fact that informal, the, f- the informal food system run by, uh, by and for po- uh, poor communities has been largely shut down by the lockdown regulations, is that part of the reason for the chaos that uh, you know has ensued to the point where we're seeing uh, looting and, 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 and what people are determined as rioting as a result of, 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 of um, uh, desperation? So from what we are seeing on the ground and what we're hearing on the ground, there are a few reasons. Firstly, of course, the lockdown has meant that what is called the informal economy, so food economy. Um, so, so, for instance, as the professor was saying, I mean, the fisher folk is not allowed to go and fish any longer. So, so that food is no longer coming in. Uh, um, um, uh, traders are not allowed to, to, to sell food on the side of the road. So... So, so a number of, of, of food outlets that is being used in the townships have been closed down. Uh, so that is one of the reasons. So um, with, 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 those, with that sector having been, been absolutely shut, um, households have not had the opportunity to, of course, access food from those. So they've been forced into the corporate sector. And so what has happened in the corporate sector is this, that, that because of the social distancing lines being so long before you can get into one of these retail stores, what the women tell us is they just go into the store, into one store, they buy what they can and they get out. And, 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 and so when the prices in these stores increase, and we did see significant increases of prices in the beginning of March before the DTI brought out their, their regulations around price gouging. Um, so, 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 so they, they buy what they have in the store, but what the women would prefer to do 
is is they would prefer to be able to go to to the trader that stands on the side of the road and they can sell them where they can buy their tomatoes, where they can buy some fruit and vegetables, because often these are cheaper and often they can buy it in quantities consistent with the amount of money they have. Um, so, so essentially, our food system, because of the lockdown, has 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 created a. a Quite a difficulty for ordinary, ordinary low-income household. Uh, Professor uh, Viswash, uh, I just want to, uh, in the last two minutes, just ask you. Um, we know that uh, uh, there's there's been this uh, this opinion uh, by some academics uh, that. Uh, providing food aid uh, ha- has two central problems, a severely constrained capacity and the publicization public, uh, of distribution um, as, 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 as two of the, the th- issues that would inhibit um, you know, any kind of food aid uh, in, in South Africa particularly. And I think the, the most pressing one is the uh, politicization because I think uh, from, 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 from a, from a uh, if, if we look at it historically, as as South Africans, we tend to see that the politics in South Africa very much dictates where politicians, where uh, not necessarily lawmakers, but uh, where uh, you know government might decide to you know take uh, take an issue. So, do you feel that these are inhibiting factors when it comes to the distribution of food aid? Well, firstly, we've called publicly for politicians to get out of food distribution uh, parcels and stuff like that. It's actually insulting to people that they're trying to score political points, they are trying to perform uh, in, in our public arena. Uh, and it's interesting that the ANC has also heeded our call because they've had no choice, because some of their own members have been engaged in corruption around food parcels, etc. So I think there's a, there's a growing public consensus uh, across society that politicians should stay out of this. I think the point about capacity and food relief, etc., I think that's working itself out. There's amazing, as I said, energy on the ground. There's all kinds of initiative and capacity. What's missing right now is is a coordination of all of this at a national scale uh, through an institution like the Solidarity Fund, working in partnership with others. We can tackle this problem, but food relief, immediate food relief, while very, very important, shouldn't take us away from solving the deeper structural problems that Mervyn and I have been talking about. We need to tackle the income problem, and I think this is where the basic income grant becomes so crucial for our society going forward. Professor and Mervyn, I, I would like to ask you to stay with me for five minutes extra. We're just going to take our news yeah. date and we'll come back. I'd just like to engage in some other matters uh, uh, as we look at the broader issue of why South Africa is facing a food crisis. And you're welcome to WhatsApp us 072-238-0712. We'll be back after the news with uh, Anika Duplessis. From Cape Town, this is the Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM. The Burning Issue. 
Six minutes after eight, welcome back to The Burning Issue. Tonight we're asking the question, why South Africa is facing a food crisis? Uh, online with me, Professor Vishwas uh, Sadgar, co-founder and activist uh, for the South African Food Sovereignty Campaign and also Mervyn Abrams, Program Coordinator for Peter Marisburg Economic Justice and Dignity. And uh, yeah, while we're discussing this matter, we do anticipate at half past eight, the President will address the country around the uh, possible economic uh, and 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 uh, yeah, basically uh, the economic uh, um, uh, implications of uh, COVID nineteen and amendments to the decisions government has been taking uh, thus far. And uh, we we hope to see uh, perhaps some people are saying a a uh, lifting of restrictions um, as far as lockdown is concerned in certain areas so that the economy can flow a little bit easier. But uh, coming back to my guest in studio, and um, I want to go back to. Uh, Mervyn, uh, now uh, is looting uh, becoming a regular occurrence uh, in your opinion due to the desperation from communities? So I wouldn't say it's been uh, um, you know an absolute uh, everywhere the case. I mean I think uh, we have seen some cases of it. I, I do think though that if we do not act quickly that we can see much more of it. And I mean, I, I would agree with the professor that that we could go into a situation of law and order, um, precisely because because people are hungry and people are desperate. And and you know, I mean, you've been talking about the food parcels and so on. Yes, important, necessary, and it's and it's and it's it's it, it, it meeting some people. But you know, all the kind of uh, bureaucracy around it. Um, actually defeats the point. Uh, how do you say to a household uh, that, that lives off an old age grant of 1,800, you can have it, but the neighbor who lives on an income of 3,600 rand cannot get it because they don't qualify for it. And we know that the food basket, a basic food basket costs 3,400. So, um, Mervin, it just does not make sense. Mervin, so, in so, actual fact, yeah. uh, we've received a WhatsApp that kind of ties into what you're saying there because someone is saying that they're an essential worker, uh, I get my wage, but cannot make ends meet uh, because prices, uh, are price, uh, prices on my essential groceries are sky high and I don't get what I normally buy because they're sold out at the time and I go to the shops to buy what I normally need. Uh, and after water account is paid and that amounts to something like eight or 900 rands and we only have a few people now, but no use queuing is uh, it costs nothing being because nothing is being done. So I'd rather pay that bill. Uh, electricity the same, seven hundred to eight hundred rand. So at the end of the day, I'm really financially stuck in this lockdown. So the person is saying now, ab- apart from the implications of you know the rise in food costs uh, uh, stated in, in 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 your report most recently, the fact that uh, you still got to pay electricity, you still got to pay water, there are other necessities. You've spoken about the fact that you know people need to buy more detergents and things like that to kind of protect themselves in this time of COVID-19. So all of these things really compound to make a very, very difficult situation even more dire. Yes, exactly. And that is exactly what we are saying. And so I uh, thank you for for, for the caller who had had, uh, mentioned that, because that is the reality of life for the majority of South Africans. And, and I mean, our basket of food between uh, March and April increased by 5.8%, 187 rand increase in that basket. 
when we look at it year on year, then it increased by 351 rand, 10.8%. And most of the wage increases were in the region of 3.4-3.5%. So food prices are increasing way above inflation. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, it's no, you know, when you buy food, you, of course, you also have to cook the food. So electricity has to be paid. People have to live in a home. So rent has to be paid or the bond has to be paid. And, and, and so at the heart of many of our crises in South Africa is the way in which our economy is structured. Our economy has not been transformed. It has not been democratized since. Uh, 1994, and this is the moment for us when we're actually seeing the impact that this is making through this pandemic, when this pandemic is throwing this light on us, we are actually seeing that we do need to restructure our economy into a way that allows a growth path away from poverty uh, uh, and to breach this level of massive wealth of inequality that we are seeing in our country. Uh, Professor Vish, um, uh, a group of civil society organizations they have called on government to top up the child support grant on the next payment day uh, to help millions of families get through the COVID-19 lockdown crisis. Now, do you think this is one short-term solution that can actually work to bridge the gap uh, as we negotiate these, these, these two weeks extra? You know, at least I think, uh, Mervyn, I stand to be corrected here as well, but I think there's about uh, 12 million children um, that yes. get the child support grant. And, um, and you know, as, as Mervyn has been sharing with us, and they've been doing excellent work on this, um, you know, the, the grants really come short. Um, I mean, you know, he, he just gave us a sense of the sort of uh, increasing costs of, of basic foods. Uh, he's given us a feel for... Um, the overall costs that have jumped. I'm just trying to recall. I wrote on a number here. But anyway, but, uh, but the point is this, is that, yes, it could be ameliorative and it could have a positive impact. But as we've been saying throughout this discussion, the scale of the problem is really, really big. It's got to do with the low-wage economy in this country. It's got to do with the loss of income of millions of people who are going to be retrenched, who have lost uh, everyday livelihood opportunities and so on. So just topping up child support grants is not a requisite response. We need something more than this. Now, the point about um, a basic income grant is that it, it's not a conditional grant. You see, even a, a child support grant, a disability grant, an old age grant, it profiles the poor. You've got to meet certain criteria, okay? You've got to meet certain conditions that the state... Um, uh, basically are putting up for you to prove that you are deserving, that you can pull down these, these so-called public benefits. The thing about a basic income grant is that it's unconditional and that it, can, it goes to every person in, in the society, and that's very, very important. The second point about it is that it can start off at a very basic level, a minimum level, but it can also go up. And you need something like that right now to, to kind of, if you like, uh, mitigate the situation. The, the other point about uh, the, the basic income grant is that it does have very powerful 
ethical and political arguments to it. So the other day we had CITA, the South African Informal Traders Association. We had the Unemployment uh, People's Movements. We had the Children's Resource Center Movements on the panel, actually yesterday, debating the, 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 the basic income grant. And the arguments that they were making were absolutely compelling around the basic income grants. The time has come. So, you know, uh, Spain is the first country in the world that has taken a leap in the context of COVID-19 to commit publicly to a basic income grant for its citizens now and beyond COVID-19. Canada, interestingly enough, um, has, has put into place major cash transfers to its citizens, etc. Uh, Namibia, um, I mean, uh, has already declared that they are going to be introducing a basic income grant now in the context of COVID-19. So they are very, very interesting examples uh, where there's, there's an attempt by governments to tackle deeper structural inequality, because that's what we've been talking about. Um, and I think the moment is here, the opportunity is here. But the question is whether the government's going to rise to the challenge. Uh, Professor Vishwas uh, at Sadgad, co-founder and activist, South African Food Sovereignty Campaign, and Mervyn Abrams, Pro- Program Coordinator for Peter Marisburg Economic Justice and Dignity. Gentlemen, I want to say thank you so much for staying with me this extra few minutes, and I uh, hope you have a fantastic evening uh, further. And let's hope we have some good news uh, coming out of the speech tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, it's time for us to take a break. When we come back, uh, we will be speaking to some relief organizations. I will be chatting to Shokut Faki Sanza, former national chairperson, currently serving on the national executive, and Yusuf Mahmoud of Islamic Relief South Africa. Uh, he's the director. And uh, we're going to be talking a little bit more about how humanitarian organizations are seeing matters unfold on the ground. Stay with us. Station, your radio station, our radio station, 91.3 FM and 95.8 FM stereo. Welcome back to The Burning Issue. It's 18 minutes after 8. In the next 12 minutes, we expect to uh, get the President's address uh, live on air. And, of course, uh, the President will be speaking uh, on additional economic and social relief measures that form part of the national uh, response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The President had, uh, obviously, uh, certain uh, deliberations at at Cabinet and also the National Coronavirus Command Council um, and the President's Coordinating Council and the National Economic Development and Labor Council and others, uh, and the, this is the culmination of those discussions and those meetings uh, this evening. As South Africa faces tough economic times, um, COVID-19 has really changed the way we do things, and it's impacted tremendously on uh, on the economy, gl- slowing growth, and uh, yes, uh, industry has been impacted. People have lost their jobs. Uh, some people are on short time, and we've been speaking about how, the, uh, how South Africa is now fa- potentially facing a food crisis, and the food 
affordability of food being one of the key things. And uh, uh, we've got some WhatsApp skill coming in. I hope to be getting to them a little bit later on if the if the speech does uh, end before the end of the show. But I do have online with me now uh, Shokut Faki, Sands, a former national chairperson, currently serving on the national executive, and Yusuf Mohammed, uh, is a director for Islamic Relief. And we're going to be talking about um, uh, how uh, South Africa, uh, as as a country, uh, has has become sort of uh, a, a a disaster site in many instances, particularly in in sub-economic areas where now there's not even an income flowing in as opposed to low-income households that we normally talk about in most areas now there's no uh, there's no uh, income uh, flowing in there's no money flowing in and so how does that impact uh, these the relief organizations and how and how they now need to should I say bridge the gap um, so I, I want to j- uh, first of all greet the, my guests uh, online Shokut and uh, Yusuf assalamu alaikum and welcome to show Shukran so much uh, for joining me. And also, um, I do understand that you form part of a broader coalition called the South African Muslim COVID-19 Task Team, uh, which has been coordinating all its efforts during this time. Um, but I understand that, like like many organizations, uh, you know, and particularly relief organizations, uh, you, you, you might be experiencing tremendous strain as, you know, day by day we see the humanitarian, uh, you know, as factor ramping up in South Africa. Um, yes, uh, no, it is, it is factual. I mean, the numbers are just growing exponentially uh, in terms of people crying, uh, crying out for aid assistance. And to be honest with you, the resources uh, that is at our disposal, and notwithstanding the fact that people have opened their hearts and generously uh, contributed in the last um, month or so uh, towards um, you know, relief work, it's just not enough. The, the numbers that's coming in of people coming through and requesting, you know, is far exceeding what we, we have in terms of resources. Now, um, Yusuf, from, from your perspective, um, how grave is the current situation, um, you know, in, in, in relation to, you know, the fact where we are now, uh, let's say, just over three weeks into lockdown? You know, as Brother Shokut said, you know, um, the situation out there is it's quite bad. In fact, it's desperate for many of our, our fellow South Africans. Um, you know, prior to the lockdown, we know the situation in South Africa with regards to unemployment um, and the economic situation for many of uh, vulnerable and marginalized families across South Africa in the rural and even in the uh, urban informal settlements. So with the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, this is just things exponentially um, out of control, really. Um, we've been inundated, and I'm sure not only us, but uh, Sanzaf and uh, all the other relief organizations are probably in the, in the same position where we are inundated with requests for assistance, whether it's, um, you know, for food assistance. Uh, some, some people need financial assistance because, as we know, it's not only about uh, food and feeding the family. Some people have needs for medication, some on chronic medication. Um, and also this has been exacerbated due to the, um, the lockdown, you know, obviously restricting movement. Um, it's uh, the situation out there. We are in unprecedented uh, territory. 
so to say. You know, it's, and nobody could have imagined that we'd be in a situation like we are today. Um, even just more than a month ago, if anybody had said that we'd be facing a situation like this in South Africa today, um, you'd have probably thought, you know, you're watching too many movies. But um, the situation out there is really, really bad. Now, uh, Shokut, how has Sanzaf uh, been able to access uh, all the communities in Cape Town? Are you getting to those who need it most? Yeah, we, we, that, that's what we've got to do because, I mean, uh, because of the limited resources as against what's needed out there, you have to some way start prioritizing in terms of making sure that you go to the most needy, the most vulnerable. And so... Um, Within Cape Town, um, the Department of Social Development has just uh, identified SANSAF as a, if I can call it, a relief distribution partner themselves, uh, where they have given us funds to distribute in the region of about 10,000 food parcels uh, just about a week ago. They've, they've really, uh, you know, identified that. They've also identified other um, NGOs in, in Cape Town. So they've identified Sanzaf to focus on the Cape Town CBD area, which is good because you're now demarcating an organization to deal with a specific area. But one of the other challenges we have with this relief work that we're doing uh, uh, is that there is no coordination amongst the NGOs, and there is a lot of duplication that's taking place. And on the other side, there's a bit of double dipping that's taking place, knowing that the NGOs are not coordinated and organized. And so uh, I think what they've done in Cape Town is good. They've given fans of uh, Cape Town CBD. They've given another organization, the southern suburb, another one, the northern suburb, etc. So we are able to then identify which areas we can focus on, who is the most vulnerable in that area, and who we've serviced. And so if more relief uh, parcels come through, we know where to go next. Otherwise, what happens is that, you know, the different organizations are running into the same families three, four times in, the, uh, in a matter of two weeks. So they're getting three or four parcels, and there's a lot that doesn't get any parcels at all. And of course, with that situation and that uh, non-coordination, you're finding that there are beneficiaries that's also forming different organizations, and they're double dipping into the, on, uh, you know, in terms of what they what they receive. So I think coordination is important, but. Uh, we, are, we have to prioritize in this regard because there is no way you can go through and say, well, you know, this is a cutoff line and we're going to service everyone below this cutoff line. I'll just give you an example. I mean, we're quite active. I'm quite active here in Gauteng. We also formed a partnership with the Department of Social Development in Gauteng, but on a different model to what Cape Town has got. Here, we actually partnered with the Department of uh, Social Development ourselves and and Operation SA, which is an organization based in Lodium. We've gone on a collection drive here. We've collected, uh, since the lockdown, just over 5 million rand. So what we've done, we've gone through, bought uh, truckloads of uh, food stuff, taken it to the central warehouse at the Department of Food Bank that is run by the Department of Social Development in Gauteng. They package them into food hampers, and then they've got a list of needy people that's on their database. And it's, this is now based on people that they know that's been receiving food, food parcels over the years uh, and that really needs it. They've got a lot of data around around those beneficiaries, ID numbers, where they're living, when last they got a food parcel, etc. So we leave the distribution through to them. And from time to time, if there are people within our community that needs 
um, you know, help. We either try and help them ourselves or we refer them to the Department of Social Development so that they get onto the database as well. Now, I was going to leave this question to last, but uh, we are moving dangerously close to half past eight till where we expect the president to address the nation. So let me ask this now. How can people support both uh, Sanzaf and Islamic Relief? And I will start with uh, Yusuf. Um, okay, maybe just to touch on one or two of the points that uh, the show could mention earlier. You know, uh, like I said, I mean, if, if you find people that uh, in the community, as they say, I don't even like to use the term, you know, double dipping, it, it sounds, you know, but underhanded, but people are in such a desperate situation. Uh, you can well imagine people have been without food, some of them for weeks. When they receive a food hamper, one food hamper, they don't know whether they're going to get another one. Uh, so if somebody else comes along with a food hamper, you know, they're not going to necessarily uh, admit that they have received one before. However, at the same time, you'll find in the community, we've experienced this way. We went to one home to deliver a food hamper because uh, we also have been, we are one of the four uh, NGOs in uh, the Western Cape that have been appointed by social development to do this um, food hamper distribution. So we get a list from social development of people who have registered via their, either their hotline or have contacted the social development through the social workers in these areas. Then they go onto a database. The database is then sent to the different organizations. As Brother Shokat said, they get assigned a certain area, and then we go according to the list that is given to us. Uh, and then we also we work closely with the community-based organizations because we may go into a, a certain area once or twice a year Whereas you have community-based organizations that maybe they don't have the prominence like a Islamic Relief or Sanzaf or Muslim Hands or African Muslims Agency has, but they deal with their communities on a daily basis. So we try as far as possible to work very closely with these community-based organizations because they are in contact with their community. And also we have to strengthen their capacity to be able to deliver aid. So, uh, you know, that is also one way that you can prevent um, you know, duplication. But as I was mentioning, in some areas you'll find people when they receive a hamper, this is one experience we've had where uh, this lady came to us when she seen we had a food hamper, she asked, do you have another one? And when I inquired, but, uh, you know, you know, we are very limited, I replied to very limited, she said, oh, oh, because if we don't have, then take it to the next door neighbor because the next door neighbor is more in need than she. You see, so while you have like you say, sometimes you find the negative stories. There are also lots of positive stories that are coming out of our communities. And I think, you know, what this lockdown has also caused people to do is to stand together and, you know, face these challenges in a united way. To support ourselves and many of the other organizations, I'm sure people know they can contact our offices. Most of our offices are operating because we are critical service at this time. But also via our website, uh, you can donate online uh, via, you know, on Islamic Relief's website, and as I'm sure it is with the other organizations. Um, Brother Shokut, uh, I'm sorry if I took a lot of time. Yeah, I think uh, the easiest way is for people to go onto our website, uh, um, the, all the con- all the details and the projects that we're running are on there, and they can uh, click on there and donate online through the web um, through the website or directly take the bank account and contribute from that perspective. But you know the work that we do is critical in terms of people contributing and donating and opening opening their hearts because we're just an intermediate in this process. 
where you know people have confidence in the way you run your processes and therefore they would like to donate through you we go out reach out to the people and distribute to them so you know very critical in that whole value chain is the donation that people make to us and we really appreciate that um, I just, uh, I'm keeping an eye on uh, the, the, the the time, and obviously um, we we expect any moment for the president to do, to take the podium. But in the meantime, I just want to come back to Islamic Relief and yourself, Yusuf. Uh, what are some of your key projects at the moment uh, at Islamic Relief SA uh, in, in in trying to coordinate some some sort of uh, you know uh, effective relief effort uh, in the community? Um, as Brother Shokat mentioned earlier on, you know, the, the need at the moment far exceeds the capacity even of all the organized, the NGOs combined to be able to address. Um, you know, there are people, forget about, um, you know, the traditional areas where we would go and do uh, distribution of, of food hampers or, or do the social work, um, you know, that, that we've been customarily or, or been accustomed to, to, to deliver in certain areas. Even in the areas that we are living in, you know, as we consider maybe your, your more middle-income uh, areas, you'd be surprised how many people that are living in these communities are struggling today. Um, and through our networks, even with many of the civic organizations, now we've actually, uh, you know, this has always been our approach to not only be, you know, the, uh, in a position where we want to come and, you know, we, we are perceived as the saviors of a community. No, we need to empower communities to be able to assist themselves. So we've initiated a few projects in many of the, like I said, not your traditional um, sub-economic areas. We get to get the civics involved in actually finding out who your, you know, your neighbor may be going, uh, going through some difficulty, but we are always looking at you know, the extremely vulnerable. Obviously, as Brother Shokat and we have mentioned before, we need to prioritize. But we encourage the community to be active participants in this uh, situation that we find ourselves in as, you know, South Africans. Um, as I said, one of the projects we initiated with two of these uh, uh, civic or resident organizations, even with some of the neighborhood watches, was to send a circular around in the area uh, via WhatsApp and get people to respond, you know, who is in need of any kind of assistance. We've done in a very anonymous uh, way. And subhanAllah, I mean, one of the areas that we've worked in within four hours from the residents in that area, and you'd, I don't want to mention the area, but 151 residents gave their details as being in, in need of assistance. So the need out there, uh, Brother Muhammad, is so huge. And I forget about the extreme, uh, how can I say, people who are facing extreme poverty, alhamdulillah, um, you know, whether it's our donors or even uh, social development at uh, a provincial level, and even now with uh, go- national government through the Solidarity Fund, are providing funding to NGOs to deliver food aid. Um, so, you know, you know, as far as possible, we encourage, as Brother Shoke had mentioned earlier, the community should get involved. Nobody should be a passive bystander. Uh, we've got another uh, organization that approached us in a week, in the, during the week, to, pro- to cook um, to prepare ready-made meals because you can imagine a food pack for some people uh, or some communities are impractical because they don't have the utensils and the, the equipment or the means to be able to cook the food. You know, so if you're giving raw ingredients, um, they, they can't, it's, it's of no use or very little use to them. So in some areas, it's, it's important actually to deliver cooked meals. And Alhamdulillah, there are organizations that are doing this, but even 
you find that uh, in many many of our residential areas, you'd find an informal settlement maybe on the on the uh, border of of the residential areas. You know, take the initiative. Obviously, do it in a way where it's uh, you know you, you involve the relevant authorities. But take you know it's time for each South African to to to, to look at what he can do. And if you're unable to do something, then there are organizations like Islamic Relief, like Sanzaf, like uh, Muslim Hands. Uh, I'm just speaking of the traditional ones that we know of, but there are many that are doing excellent work. And please try and support the work that they are doing. Uh, I want to say a big shukran to Shokut Faki, uh, Sanza, former national chairperson, currently serving on the national executive, and Yusuf Mohammed, uh, Islamic Relief South Africa director. Gentlemen, shukran so much for joining us this evening. May Allah uh, grant you uh, capacity to be able to uh, address the problem as it is on the ground and uh, yeah, to make a meaningful difference, inshallah. I know that people do appreciate, I see messages coming through people uh, thanking Sanza and the other relief organizations like Islam relief uh, for the tireless work that they're doing and the good work that they are doing in the community. So, Mohammed, if I can just same. make a mention, if you, if you allow me, just on behalf of not only Islamic Relief, but Sanzaf, I'm sure, and many of these other NGOs, we have an amazing, amazing group of volunteers. You know, and if it wasn't for our volunteers that have, like, they sacrificed their time, you know, the other on Friday night, they worked until 12 o'clock at night to pack 800 hampers that had to be delivered to the West Coast uh, Friedenberg municipality. Uh, without our volunteers, we would never be, have been able to reach the community. So please, even if you're unable to assist us, I ask the community, make dua that Allah protect those that are delivering the aid. Because, um, you know, we are delivering the aid on the front line, exposing ourselves to, uh, you know, putting ourselves at the risk of contracting the virus. Not only us, but all the those that are assisting, please remember us in your du'as. Inshallah. Amen. Gentlemen, shukran so much. All Jazakallah, best. shukran for you, and, 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 and shukran. And, uh, yeah, I say amin, just uh, make du'a for all of us that's, that's doing this thing. And as um, Brother Yusuf said, the frontline workers are really the, 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 the foot soldiers that's, that's uh, you know, exposed and that's really delivering the service there. Inshallah. All the best. Jazakallah and khairan. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. That was Shokut Faki, Sansa, former national chairperson, 